All right, tonight we are in uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, verses 1 through 10, uh, page 1223, if you want to use the Bible in the pew in front of you, it'll be on the screen otherwise. And uh, if, if a preacher's allowed to say such a thing, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, um, this is my least favorite parable. Uh, so I hope we can make our way through it tonight and have something to show at the end of it. But we're at Luke 16, 1 through 10, and it says this, Then Jesus said to his disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him, and he said to him, What is it that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? He answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. Then he asked another, How much do you owe? He replied, A hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and make it eighty. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in very little is faithful also in much, and whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then, you who have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth Who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. This is uh, one of those passages where, like, you know, last week, last week was, it was on a tee as a preacher, as far as you're concerned. Like, Luke 15 has got three parables about things being lost, the, the sheep, the coin, the lost son, or the prodigal son. These are, these are just on a tee for a preacher. It's not hard to come up with sermons for those. I should have quit while I was ahead because I for, always forget. It comes around every three years or so when, uh, when the lectionary comes to this again and they follow up. I mean, it makes sense to follow up Luke 16 from Luke 15, but it grinds the gears a little bit. Uh, it is tough to follow up last week with this story. This is one of those ones where the more you read it, a little more confusing every time. It feels like things are being endorsed that shouldn't be endorsed. You're not sure who the good guys are, the bad guys are. Who's God in the story? Who are we in the story? Who, are, who is who? And what are we talking about? and all this stuff, right? Each week I meet with a group of pastors, and we uh, sit down for a couple hours on Mondays, and we uh, support each other, talk about what's going on in our lives. Um, Occasionally, people complain about their churches, not me. Um, But mostly just support each other, pray for each other, and then we look at whatever the lectionary text is that week, and we all talk about it and kind of bounce ideas off each other and, and, and help each other out. And uh, usually, I mean, there's, there's times when I walk in there, and I know what the passage is for the next week, and uh, because it's Monday, I just preached a sermon on Sunday night, and even though I looked at things on Monday morning, I just, I don't even know what to think about. What am I going to preach on out of this text? I can't find anything in it that I want to preach on. But usually like 10, maybe 15 minutes into our conversation, I find something 
Like someone says something or I notice something I haven't before because the ideas that are bouncing around, and it's at least that kind of hook, that thread I can start to pull, and then a sermon comes out of it by the end of the week, and then we start all over again on Monday. It really is usually maybe 10 or 15 minutes tops for me. This past week, six of us, which is a good attendance, six of us were there. Six of us sat around a table picking apart the parable of the unjust steward for an hour. And after an hour, there was that kind of weird silence that happens in group conversations where everyone just, there's a lull for a minute. And one of the other pastors said, is, is anyone in this room closer to knowing what they're going to preach about uh, than they were an hour ago? And all of us looked at each other and went, no, absolutely not. I have no idea what to talk about. Uh, it feels almost like a joke from Luke to put this parable immediately following the prodigal son, right? The prodigal son has lessons in it that may be hard to implement in our lives. They're not easy lessons, but they're very straightforward. I know that God is a, a merciful and forgiving father whose love is unconditional, right? I know that the younger son is, is all of us in need of repentance to turn back and go home and we've wasted the parts of our lives that we've been given. I know the old, older brother has a choice to join the party or not, and I should be the join the party kind of brother, not the stay at home kind of brother. I can preach three or four weeks. I have preached three or four weeks on the prodigal son before, and I wouldn't have to prepare that much to do it, to be honest with you. And then Luke follows that up with this story that defies any easy explanation, that defies any easy allegorizing or anything else. And it just feels like a weird thing to follow up the prodigal son with. To me, it feels like if I was reading my, to my three-year-old Chapman a bedtime stories at night and I started off with a giving tree and then ended with like Fight Club and told him to sleep tight and turn off the lights, right? The only way I know how to even begin to preach this parable is by doing two things that I want to do tonight and then try to unpack them. And, and the two things are this. One, I want to start at the end and then work backwards. So I want to start at the end. And then the second thing is I want to talk about the culture of what's happening in this parable because I think since we're living in that time, we miss something that's going on here. So let's, let's do those two things. First, let's begin at the end. It says this in verse 13, No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And every place in this section of scripture where it says wealth is actually from the Greek word that we translate as mammon. In fact, we talked about that a few weeks ago, being a people of manna versus a people of mammon, right? But we cannot forget verse 13. It all leads, it all builds to verse 13. We cannot forget that this story always ends and is intended to end here. Any interpretation of this parable that does not end with choosing correctly between mammon, wealth, and God is, a, is the wrong interpretation, right? So we can know that. We can reverse engineer it from there. And remember that this term mammon is, uh, it's again, translated as like dishonest wealth or wealth throughout this parable. It's a Greek term, and it's basically, um, it's like a deified sense of accumulation. In other words, uh, it is used in the Bible and talked about as a false idol, as a false god, little g. Uh, something that asks humans to order their lives underneath it, right? Now, it's not about having money or not having money. It's not saying if you have money, you're bad, and if you're poor, you're good. It's nothing that simple. It's about accumulation as an organizing principle, which can be an organizing principle if you're poor or rich, Right? It's, it's one of those things that we order our lives by. Mammon requires particular values and particular sacrifices. It is a little g god, according to scripture. It's a false god, it's an idol, but it is a little g god nonetheless. 
Jesus tells us that we cannot give our devotion to both mammon and God, right? The choice is between competing gods and their respective kingdoms. And that is the backdrop on which all of this is painted. Who will we love? What will we serve is the guiding question. But we'd also do well to understand the culture of what's happening in this story because it would have been very common knowledge to those first hearing it, but it's, we have no idea what it is. And I owe a lot of this research to a guy named Brian McLaren who, who kind of helped me bring it into focus as I listened and read to some of his stuff on it. And this parable is set in a world uh, that is very different from ours in some ways and very alike in others. At this time where Jesus lives, uh, the south and the north, kind of the divided kingdom, and uh, maybe unlike what we think about in our country and in our history, uh, the wealthy folks were in the south. And the wealthy folks in the south um, had the money and kind of had the culture and had the consumers, and it was just kind of a, a wealthier place to be. In the north was a lot more like farmlands and that kind of thing, and there were a lot of poor farmers up in the north. Now remember, at this point, all, all things are controlled by Rome, and Rome heavily taxes the Jews, right? So what would happen is this. The, Jewish, the poor Jewish farmers up in the north would get really heavily taxed on their land and all, the, all that it produces to the point where they couldn't pay the taxes and live off of it, right? What was left. And so then the wealthy folks in the south would see a business opportunity. This is a good investment opportunity. So what they would do is they go up to these farmers in the north and they say, look, I'll pay your taxes in exchange for the deed to your land. Now, I'm not going to kick you off the land, right? But I now own the land. And you get to stay and you get to keep farming the land. I'm not going to farm. I'm a wealthy guy from the south. We don't do that kind of stuff. You farm it, but then you have to give me a certain portion, a significant portion of what you grow and then you can keep the rest and do what you need to, take care of you and your family. And so they would go up there, and they would pay the taxes, they would get the land, and then get these people to work the land for them, essentially sticking them kind of in that spot where they can't really move on at that point. They're kind of stuck being poor farmers in the north. And then they would take the goods that come from the farms down to the south, to where all the money is, to where all the consumption is, and they would jack up the prices, and they would make a bunch of money on what the folks were growing from the north. And they weren't actually doing any farming, but they were making most of the money on it. So it was one of those kind of situations where the rich were getting richer, the poor were getting permanently stuck in that place. There was a lot of resentment from the poor towards the rich. But those wealthy southerners that end up becoming all the landowners didn't want to go about doing the dirty work of collecting on all their properties, so they would hire a manager. They would hire a steward, someone who lived in the north and someone who could go to those that uh, were working the farms that they owned and collect the stuff that was owed to them. And those stewards kind of acted like uh, Roman tax collectors, right? They would go and collect from their own people uh, to give to the people who already have a lot, and so they were resented for it, and they would usually add a little bit on top of what they collected to kind of line their own pockets some. And they ended up kind of getting in middle class, maybe you would say, because they were doing better than the farmers, but of course they weren't doing nearly as well as the owners. And so this is the situation that's happening there. It was a system, like most systems, keeping some on top, a few on top, and some permanently underneath them. It was a version of what every kingdom of the world proves to be. No matter how good or ugly it might be, every kingdom of the world proves to be this basic kind of setup. It's a pyramid, if you will, where a majority is trapped at the bottom and everything is built on their backs and most of the profits go uphill. 
Some in the middle learn how to work the system and are in a position where they can do a little better than those on the bottom, but they're still dependent on those who are above them. They still don't really get very far in life. And uh, there's, they don't, they're always stepping on those below them to get a little closer to the richest folks. This is the system that they're within. And there's those at the top of the pyramid who benefit the most, and of course those folks rarely descend unless something catastrophic happens. And this entire structure, this entire kingdom, this entire system that they're working within is built on mammon. Everything is ordered under the insatiable desire for accumulation, for growing and growing and getting more and more for those who already have. And again, it mostly just benefits the few at the top. It survives based on increasing all the time, on hoarding, on climbing over whoever you can. These, wor- these kingdoms of the world are organized, to, uh, organized by an answer to mammon, to what the Bible calls unrighteous wealth. Got that? The whole make sense? All right. So while Jesus' parable does uh, avoid easy interpretation or categorization, we know that this manager who's here in the middle collecting from the poor and giving to the rich and making some on his own, has learned the very hard lesson that eventually everybody learns about the kingdoms of the world. You might find a way to benefit from mammon, but ultimately, mammon does not care about you. The manager probably made reasonably reasonably good living and probably didn't lose much sleep over the way he made his money. He probably didn't think too much about the farmer or the system that's going to keep that farmer a farmer on land they don't own forever. He probably didn't think much about it. The system was treating him just fine until it wasn't. And he made that mistake that a lot of us make. He made the mistake of thinking that something he was benefiting from was something that cared for him. And mammon cares nothing for us. On a whim, it doesn't even demonstrate in here that he had good reason to believe it, but on a whim, the owner decides to take that owner, uh, that, that steward out of his place and plug someone else into that manager's position in the middle of the pyramid. The, man, the manager then is stuck, right? He doesn't get to move up and become an owner. That's not even an option for He doesn't get to go down anymore because the farmers below him don't like him for all that he's been doing. Not to mention the fact that he doesn't actually know how to do any of the hard work that it takes to make a living on the bottom of the pyramid. So he's stuck. This newly fired manager suddenly sees the system for what it is. The newly fired manager has a rapid change of heart about how the world should actually be working. Technically, this is what the Bible calls repentance. It's the changing from one thing to another. Strictly speaking, that's what repentance is, even if the manager's motivation is less than noble. The manager decides to start using mammon and stop letting mammon use him. Now, I think it would be a stretch to attribute much piety to him. He seems to be pretty selfish in general. But the the story tells us we cannot serve God and mammon. And the manager, while he may not have been trying to decide to love God necessarily, he does choose to stop serving mammon. He uses unrighteous wealth instead of being used by it. And maybe it's just a happy coincidence, but that intentional decision that the steward makes, his repentance benefits the poor, the needy, the oppressed neighbors around him. When he stops serving uh, mammon, 
it results in love of his neighbor, which of course is another way of saying it results in the love of God. I'm not willing to put a white hat on the manager and call him a hero, but he does at least stumble upon the deeper principle that we're supposed to arrive at. You cannot love the system as it is. You cannot love mammon and love God and your neighbor at the same time. Perhaps maybe tonight we can learn from this anti-hero, the one who saw the world for what it was and decided to turn it on its head. Now, normally that's not what we do. In fact, I would say normally there are two temptations that faithful people who are benefiting from the kingdoms of the world tend to have. If we're benefiting from the kingdoms and we begin to feel that there's uh, some difference between what we're supposed to be doing and the world we're living in, one of the things we do is we just call the kingdom of the world holy. We just name it Christian. Despite the harm it might be causing to those around us, despite the obvious um, injustices that are going on, we benefit from it, so we just say this must be God's will, it must be godly. Uh, That way it kind of makes us feel a little more justified, and we just name things Christian that aren't by nature anything like, you know, Christ. And suddenly that which has nothing to do with Jesus gets called Christian. It's a neat trick. We do it all the time. And we either do that, or the other thing that we can do, and we talked a little bit about this a couple weeks ago, is we just segment our faith off so that we might maintain some kind of dual citizenship, right? I am God's kingdom on Sundays. I am God's kingdom on my Facebook page. I am God's kingdom on the things I say I believe and the way I talk in life. But I'm all mammon at work. And I'm mammon in my voting, and I'm mammon in my finances, and I'm mammon otherwise, right? And I try to keep a foot in both worlds. And I just spiritualize my faith so much that it has nothing to do with what's actually going on around me and who's actually being hurt around me. We spiritualize our faith in such a way that we become, uh, to quote the great American prophet Johnny Cash, uh, so heavenly-minded that we are no earthly good. I submit that neither of these things are what Jesus has in mind for us to do I believe we are called to live in the world as it is, to see it for what it is, while helping to build the world that is to come. We should see the system for what it really is. And while we have no choice but to live within it, we can choose not to live of it. And refusing to serve it, we use it to benefit that which eternally matters, which is people, each other. That is how I think we are called to live in the world of mammon, to use it for what matters. Allow me to close with what could be a parable, except it's true. Uh, while I was in my last year of seminary and Sarah and I were engaged, uh, we were both working and trying to pay off debts and save money for the wedding and all that kind of stuff. One of the best decisions we made is we both started working at a place that was like this beautiful old house outside of Atlanta, and it, uh, we host, it hosted like weddings and parties and all that kind of stuff. And so we worked there on the weekends and worked, you know, setting up and tearing down and busting dishes and doing all this kind of stuff during these big parties. And it was not a cheap place to rent out. And it was a great decision for us to live there because then we got a massive discount when we got married and wanted to have it there. But we got to see a lot of cool, big, nice parties at this place. Um, however, it is safe to say that on average, the clientele that we served um, was pretty homogenous. They pretty much all looked the same and kind of lived in the same places, right? Again, wasn't a real cheap place to rent out. And then there was one Saturday when we set up for a big corporate Christmas party and dinner, 
And after we had set up and it was a getting ready time, everyone started showing up for the party. And one after another, these families started showing up, big families. Not dressed particularly nice. Some of the kids were decked out. Not dressed particularly nice. And we realized as they were coming in and we were trying to help guide people on where to go, that most of the families and most of the people in the families did not speak English. Or at least it was their second language and they weren't very strong in their English. And pretty soon, the whole place was filled with these happy families having a great time. And they looked honestly more like the guys that I worked with to set up the party than the folks we usually hosted at the party. And so we were kind of going, man, this is a whole different kind of thing happening here, right? And most of the people in the room I couldn't communicate directly with. And so we are trying to navigate all that. And then the owner of the company showed up a little bit late in his giant pickup truck loaded with Christmas stuff. I mean, like Santa Claus style, just loaded up with Christmas stuff. Unloaded it all, brought it in, and then I got to witness uh, what is probably the favorite party I've ever seen uh, thrown by an air conditioning repair company. The owner brought all the stuff in, settled everyone down before we served the sit-down, nice dinner that we were serving. He talked to everyone in the room with the help of a translator. Um, he talked of his gratitude for all the hard work for the people in the room had put in that year, how well things had gone because everyone had worked so hard, and he just commended everyone and all that they did. He talked about the meaning of Christmas and what it meant to him as a person of faith, and they had a throwdown party. Kids were having a great time. Adults were having a great time. Felt like a big family in the room, right? And as the night went on, I, because I'm walking through the room and clearing dishes and all that kind of stuff, I got to watch the owner because I knew something weird was going on. This is not the kind of thing we normally saw. And I watched the owner, and that owner personally got around to every table and every family. And every time he went to a table, he brought presents with names on it for every child in the family. And some of those families had several, a bunch of kids at them. Everyone had a name on it, and all of them got a present, and they were like good presents too. This is not like, I went, of course, Amazon, I don't even know if it existed then. Not get on Amazon and buy the cheapest thing you can. This is stuff kids want for Christmas, and the kids were having a big time opening these things up. He sat down with each of the family, talked with each of them. He knew everyone's names, had presents for each of the kids by names. After he went to all the tables, he got back up in front of everyone, told them all to take out tickets that they had. I don't know where they got them from. And they started drawing names for door prizes. And they gave away amazing, I'm talking like TV game show door prizes. Video cameras, TVs, video game systems, you name it. And this is 20 years ago, right? This is when TVs were still expensive. It was nice stuff. Some Best Buy salesman someplace had the commission check of their lives that Christmas because this guy came in and bought everything that I wanted under my Christmas tree that year and probably wouldn't get. And it was just so jarring in a beautiful way to watch something happen like that in the room because it's just not something you see. It was beautiful to watch someone at the top of the respective pyramid use what he had to genuinely and enthusiastically celebrate those who are at the quote-unquote bottom. Those who normally do all the work but remain anonymous and benefit the least. This was a guy who understood. He understood the system in which he found himself. He understood how he benefited from it. He understood the power and privilege that mammon afforded him. And he decided to use that mammon instead of letting it use him. He took the wealth it produced, and he used it for the one thing that mattered, the people 
around him. He understood that you can love God and neighbor or you can love mammon, but you can't love both. He knew how to use mammon in a way that dethrones it while he uses it. And that was a pretty thing to watch. So maybe we can learn from this unjust steward and maybe we can learn from an AC repairman who seemed to get it right. Now maybe each of us, maybe each of us can live in this world fully as it is. Not some Pollyanna, not some version of how things were, but look at, honest, look at it honestly and truly. Maybe we can live fully in the world as it is, all while building the world as it one day will be. Let's pray.